Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 86, Revelation, the Kingdom of Our Lord. And in this episode, I plan to wrap up the remainder of Revelation chapter 11, one that gives us a beautiful vision of the kingdom that is to come, but also the connections that John wants us to make between how the church and the faithful followers of the Lamb are the means through which the Lord begins this heavenly reign that we one day will see fully realized. And so what I want to do today is to highlight for us a couple of things. The first being how it is that the Lord brings justice and restores his reign to the earth, the way he chooses to use his people in order to accomplish it, And then, in fact, how that justice is oftentimes viewed by those who oppose the Lord, his ways, and his people is oftentimes viewed by them as judgment. And the very specific language that John chooses to use to describe that judgment, I think it will help us to ponder the way it is that the Lord actually will come one day and set everything straight. And so keeping much in line with the book of Revelation as a whole, we need to be able to recognize the way these themes take place centered solely in the person of Jesus and then in the people that Jesus has created um, to follow him. And so I'm excited to get into this episode with you. Let's just jump right in. Before I read the passage from Revelation 11 that will be the focus of this week's episode, I did want to take just a moment and address some things that I said in episode 85, Where is Babylon? Um, Because it was brought to my attention by a, a really faithful listener to the podcast who's been tracking with me from episode one. Um, that if someone were to jump into this podcast and listen just to episode 85, they might think that uh, deep down inside, I just have a a personal issue with President Trump. And that instead, um, if, if someone has not been able to listen to all of the episodes and recognize the foundations that I have been laying for so many months, there may be opportunity for misunderstanding. And I do realize that if you are listening to this episode at all right now, you probably are not among those who were particularly bothered by episode 85. But just in case you were, or in case you know of anyone who might have not understood everything that I was saying, I would like to toss out that the reason I'm doing this podcast is because I am trying to lay a foundation. And it's my conviction, as it's been from the very beginning, that we don't have a good foundation laid which doesn't actually give us the tools needed to have real conversations and to spot real injustices in the world when we see them. And several of you have commented along the way in this podcast that you've been in churches a long time and you've not heard these things being said. And so what's exciting to me is the potential that this gives us to be able to respond more appropriately when society goes in directions we don't think it should But my podcast really is here to support the church. I'm here to try to exhort the church to live faithfully to the very Jesus that we claim we believe in. And the more I get to know him, the more I see he is increasingly comfortable pointing out things in my own life that are out of alignment. And the more comfort I find in the freedom he gives me when I open myself up to him, 
the more ability I have and the more comfortable I feel exposing things um, that are going on around us that need corrected in light of the truth of the gospel. And so I would encourage you, if you're hanging with me here through episode 86, but what I said in the last episode bothered you, thank you. Thank you for not giving up on this. And if you know of some people that you think might have listened to just that episode um, and were bothered, I would just encourage you to ask them to go back to the beginning and say, let's look at the way the Bible lays a foundation that I think is healthier for us to be able to ask different questions and as a result, come up with different answers. And so I did want to throw in that little caveat um, just to make sure that I didn't lose anyone unnecessarily. Again, I don't apologize for the things that I said. I think they're true, but they have the potential to be the best understood if you've been following along with me from the beginning. And I could also ask, ask if you would like to send someone back to episode four, the competing creation narrative, where I actually laid out Babylon's creation myth. And a lot of the themes that I brought up in episode 85 would be made much clearer if you had that in the background. So again, I'm hoping you're continuing to stick with me, but I did want to mention that just to let people know the reason why I have freedom to say what I say now is because of all the things that I have said before ever since episode one. So now with, uh, with that out of the way, I would like to read for you Revelation 11, 14 through the end of the chapter, and then I would like to make some observations about it. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. Now, a couple of thoughts that I'd like to share with you. I'm going to read for you um, just some notes. It's a repeat of something that I said in episode 69, uh, which was Revelation conquering and to conquer. And it was as we began Revelation chapter 6. So let me just begin that way. I think it will help us, especially as we've ended these verses here with a a recognition of flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail, language that we have heard before in Revelation, but we actually hear it um, spoken on the lips of Jesus in the Gospels as well. So here's what I shared in that episode, and it might sound familiar to you if you've already listened to that episode. Everything seems to be blown up to cosmic proportions, and that assessment would be correct. Everything is blown up to cosmic proportions. And this is one of the main reasons I inserted episode 42, Revelation shaking the heavens into the podcast. 
And one of the points I made in that introduction to that episode was this. The thrust of the book of Revelation is on how God intends to replace the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. One kingdom is being shaken and a new one is being set up in its place. The language Jesus used to describe this shaking, which in the gospels focused primarily on Israel's version of the temple and the religious system they had made it into, was cosmic in scope. Listen to Luke 21, 25 and 26. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. You see, the heavens and the earth are connected. And when the kingdom of the heavens invades the kingdom of the earth, there will be a whole lot of shaking going on. Those things that are not rooted in Jesus's unshakable kingdom will be brought to an end. And to further illustrate this, all through the book of Revelation, earthquakes and thunder and lightning and hail appear repeatedly at significant places, places where another feature of this shaking is taking place. And this is precisely how our passage begins. The angel blows his trumpet and there are loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, this is really interesting because we know that the kingdoms of this world are rooted in this world's way of thinking. And the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is rooted in God's way and in a heavenly way of thinking. But right here in the thrust of Revelation 11, when the saints themselves allow the beast to conquer them, but the saints while suffering unto death faithfully for Jesus are actually conquering the beast, there is this strange reality happening where one kingdom, the kingdom that's driving this world, when it cannot overpower the kingdom of God, transitions those caught in the grip of the kingdoms of this world into fully seeing and wanting to likewise embrace the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And so this stunning, strange, fascinating, intriguing transition is happening right here between a kingdom of this world and a kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And so I have been working all week thinking about how to say this in the best way. Let me just read for you several paragraphs from a book I quote from often. It's called A Slaughtered Lamb by Gregory Stevenson. And I think he will just set me up for me to be able to make a few further observations to catch us all up to what is happening here. He says this, it is the faithful prophetic witness of those who embody the pattern of the Christ that results in the kingdom of the world becoming the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. There is a note of finality and completion here that is lacking in previous descriptions. John provides in Revelation 11, 16 to 18, a skeleton description of God's actions that will receive flesh in chapters 14 through 22. The focus in chapter 11 is on the God who will balance the scales and establish justice by reconciling the two kingdoms and bringing order out of chaos. 
these verses end with the assertion that God's wrath will result in destroying the destroyers of the earth. Richard Bauckham, another book that I often reference, The Theology of the Book of Revelation. Here, Stevenson is referencing Bauckham, which I found was a, a double reason to quote this for you. But he says, Bauckham notes that this is an example of lex talionis, measure for measure, or as we might say, the punishment fits the crime. Identifying the destroyers of the earth as, quote, the powers of evil who are ruining God's creation with their violence, oppression, and idolatrous religion. Bauckham acknowledges that God's judgment of such opposition is not the cruel whim of a vengeful and spiteful deity, but the establishment of justice. This is what I was trying to allude to in the introduction to this episode, is we have this idea, I'm afraid, and I had it growing up, and maybe you do too, that the God of the Old Testament was very quick and easy and eager to dispense judgment. And okay, so he sends Jesus and he's willing to be nice and kind to people and treat them with a little more mercy. But in the end, he's gonna come back and the real God, the God we all thought was vengeful and wrathful and hateful and mean-spirited in the Old Testament, that God's gonna come back and he is going going to literally obliterate everybody who stands opposed to him. But what I want you to understand, especially as these these worshipers in in the heavenly temple, um, these loud voices, and then the the 24 elders who are expressing your, you know, the dead are judged, you reward your servants, the prophets and saints, and you destroy the destroyers of the earth. You get this strange idea that what the Lord actually allows is for if, if he comes in, in justice and in righteousness, as he did when Jesus came, those who stand opposed to Jesus, those whose own view of righteousness and justice does not coincide with Jesus's view, end up wanting to remove Jesus from the scene in order for his definition of righteousness not to get too personal or too invasive or to expect too much of people that they're unwilling to give. Their determination to remove from their presence the true righteousness of God is simultaneously their rejection of God's offer of salvation, but it is also their own judgment. Because if they put to death the very one who is the expression of life, then they are choosing before God that they prefer death to life. If they choose before God that they prefer death to life, then God is going to grant them what they want, which is death. And so notice, he calls these people destroyers of the earth. And in Bauckham's language, he identifies that as the powers of evil who are ruining God's creation with their violence, oppression, and idolatrous religion. These are terms, funny enough that that I'm reading this now, but these are terms that I was trying to use to explain to you the, 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 the nature and the thrust of Babylon. Babylon, violence, oppression, and idolatrous religion, anywhere and in any heart or in any nation or in any race or in any structure where you see violence, oppression, and idolatrous religion, you have embodied not only Babylon, but what Revelation here is now calling the destroyers of the earth. And so Gregory Stevenson goes on. By judging the dead, 
destroying those who destroy the earth and rewarding his servants, God shows himself faithful to his covenant. Notice again, and now this is my commentary, not Stevenson, but notice again, as our passage ends with flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, earthquake and heavy hail, we again saw these same descriptors used initially in Revelation chapter four, things that were proceeding from the throne itself and the one seated on the throne. We saw similar responses when there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour at the beginning of Revelation chapter eight and the prayers of the saints offered in golden bowls full of incense were being offered up to the throne requesting what? Requesting justice for the injustice that's been going on in the world. And even at the end of Revelation chapter six, when people were hiding under caves and in mountains and in holes and rocks of the ground, they're, they're covering themselves from the wrath of God, the wrath of the lamb, afraid about who can stand in his presence. And then chapter seven showed us that those who are redeemed, who've been rescued, who've given up their lives for the sake of the lamb, those are the ones who can stand in the lamb's presence. And so the coming of the Lord is both a delight and a, and, a, and, a, and a moment of peace and a moment of satisfaction and a moment of joy for those who follow him. And it is a moment of terror and of disruption and of destruction to those who don't. And so the Lord's presence, as Psalm 18 dictates through David, that the Lord coming with smoke in his nostrils and flames coming out of his, of his eyes and and of his very presence to rescue David in a moment of distress is one way that the faithful see the coming presence of the Lord. But that same reality, earthquakes, heavy hail, lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder is disturbing and scary to those who aren't sure they know who the Lord is and what his coming might demand of them. But this is the beauty of Revelation. Because this passage here is kind of bringing us up to a crescendo. It has laid out before us the way in which the Lord is going to choose to reign on the earth. And you realize, right, that he will one day desire to reign in and through us. And he is outlining now something extremely similar to the way Jesus himself claimed to one day be exalted to enter into his own reign as the king when he was exalted, when he was lifted up on a cross, according to John chapter 12, and ushering in when he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. How will Jesus do that? By self-sacrificially compassionately dying for his enemies in love. That's a message now that the church, the Christians, the followers of Jesus, the witnesses of the lamb, when they embody that same reality, the world takes notice. They see it, cannot understand why on earth anyone would self-sacrificially give up so much for them that it catches their attention that's the way Revelation describes thou the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, how that works, this is what Stevenson's getting at again. Let me continue reading a, a section from his book. 
through this movement, and he's talking about this from, from earth where the witnesses happened right on up into this heavenly sanctuary. Through this movement, John communicates the contrast between earthly reality and heavenly reality. On earth, God's people, if they are faithful, are threatened at war, forever in opposition to the world in which they live. Despite their faithfulness and at times because of it, they suffer and sometimes die, while those who oppose them seemingly prosper. For many Christians, this perceived inequity might call the justice and faithfulness of God into question. The movement from earth to heaven in this chapter, however, makes the point that spiritual reality must govern one's perspective of earthly reality, not the other way around. This is the transformative language of apocalyptic. It asserts that one's earthly experiences must be viewed in the light of God's heavenly reality. The heavenly appearance of the ark makes the point that no matter what transpires on earth, God's covenant remains in effect and he will faithfully execute it. The apocalyptic perspective of the seventh trumpet is that God's sovereignty is secure that the kingdom of the world will never ultimately triumph over the kingdom of God and that God will act in justice to set everything right. It is this perspective that instills in the community of faith an assurance that faithful witness according to the pattern of the Christ will, by the covenant faithfulness of God, receive vindication and be an instrument through which God will faithfully exercise his sovereignty over creation. If you have a Bible open in front of you and look at verse 17, the elders are worshiping and say that they give, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And of course, this um, crescendo, this statement of song of victory immediately follows this moment when the embodied love of the Lord and faithfulness to him of the Lord's people resulting in death and then in their vindication is the way in which the Lord reigns. This is ultimately what the Lord was doing on the cross. He was reigning over his enemies. He was conquering sin and death. He was exalting himself in the presence of the world by allowing the world's wickedness and sin and, and um, hatred and wick and evil being placed upon him. He put it to death and then was resurrected victorious over it. That same pattern is being embodied in the Lord's people. And so when the Lord reigns, he doesn't just reign as king in the hearts of his people, but when that reality that is present in the hearts of people, when that reality as a community takes shape and we become a self-sacrificial um, embodied presence of weakness, if you will, as a church, resurrection power is applied specifically in those places where from an earthly perspective, the community of God's people look weak and they look like they've been defeated. And so these 24 elders are worshiping. They're praising the Lord saying, you've taken your great power and begun to reign. But notice how the Lord's 
power results in his reign. It comes as a result of weakness, brokenness, suffering, vulnerability, and death. Only to then have the Lord's resurrection power poured out on the one place on earth that is just and justified in having resurrection power poured out. Where's that? On the cross, the place of death. When our faithfulness to Jesus, when the people's faithfulness to Jesus embodies that reality and we believe it and we're willing to give up our own power-hungry, power-grabbing, manipulative ways, which the kingdom of Babylon is so obsessed with, then the Lord pours out resurrection power and he reigns in and through his people. And so Revelation eleven seventeen is describing, first of all, what transpires through the self-sacrificial witness embodied um, in the people of the community of faith, how the Lord chooses to reign through them. But this is also portraying a future reality. And the reason why revelation can do this, the reason why revelation can jump between is this future, is this present, is this future, is this present? The answer so many times through revelation is yes. Yes, it's future. Yes, it's present. Why? How? Because the resurrection, which is a futuristic reality, has already taken place in the present. For us, it took place with Jesus 2,000 years ago, which is actually the past. But what did that mean? That meant that at the moment Jesus was raised from the dead, he ushered in the new age. And we live now between that being fully realized and the fact that it's already begun. And we call that the already not yet. And so we experience resurrection power. The Lord experiences his reigning and his ruling over his creation now in and through his people as a result of them embodying the pattern of the Christ. And so that's ultimately how this works. And so that's again why in verse 18, it's so helpful to point out that the nations raged, but your wrath came. This is an allusion back to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed? And then it says the Lord sits in heavens and he laughs. To, to the Lord, it, it's not an issue of who's gonna conspire against him because there's nothing that the kingdoms of this world can do to stop the Lord reigning. Why? Because the Lord reigns through allowing death to swallow him. And the kingdoms of this world think that they're reigning when they use death to swallow those they feel are opposed to them. And so there is no conceivable place in the world, on the planet at all, where the kingdoms of this world are ever going to overcome the kingdoms of our Lord, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. It cannot happen. And so what we've got is this inverted reality here. And this is the best way I've come to understand how judgment works, how it makes sense. Because the people themselves who reject the truth of Jesus and who he is and what he represents are judging themselves. The Jews do this. They judge themselves unworthy of eternal life when they reject the one who is life. The Jews have ideas of what brings life to them. When Jesus, who is the embodiment of actual life and actual love, when they look at that and they see him as a threat and they see him as an intrusion and they see him as someone who does not embody their definitions of life and good in the world, 
and they put him to death, they do so out of the belief that if he were removed from the scene, they would be able to get back to life as normal. What that means is they are defining death as life. If you do that in the presence of the one who is life, you have in effect chosen death. And the way you choose to live in this world will mirror that belief in the violence, the oppression, and the idolatrous religion that is so ingrained in the Babylon's type kingdoms of this world. And so just to give you a couple of examples from the Old Testament of the way judgment is even described in our very own Bibles, things you might not have thought about before, but I want you to try them on, for example, based upon what I'm proposing from Revelation 11. Listen to Psalm 7. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief, and he gives birth to lies. He makes a pit digging it out and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull, his violence descends. Do you hear what's being described here? The wicked person who in his own heart and life has defined life or has defined goodness in such a backwards way that the judgment he stands to receive is that the things he set up to, you know, advance himself and, and um, you know, disadvantage someone else is going to end up disadvantaging him. The Lord has established the earth to work this way. And his judgment or the Lord's wrath, if you will, is this very reality playing itself out. This one is even clearer, Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 21, a passage I've referenced before, specifically as it relates to witnessing, which we know is the purpose of the church. It's that was the purpose of Jesus to witness to the truth. And I referenced this passage again when we talked about the two witnesses from the early verses of Revelation 11. So listen to Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 21. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, listen, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now you might scratch your head and ask, why is this in the Bible? What is the purpose of this law? Let me tell you the purpose. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a matter be affirmed, shall a charge be established. This is important. 
And in a community that wants to center itself on actual justice, on actual righteousness, and on actual truth, the community needs to know that there is the potential to be a malicious witness. And in order to safeguard against that so that we make sure real truth, real justice, and real righteousness happens, we are going to need testimony from two or three separate individuals to make sure that their stories agree. Now, I want you to listen to me. The reality is in a world where we define good and evil for ourselves, it is possible for a person to want to testify to something they claim is the truth because they really want the person with whom they are in disagreement to get what's coming to them. They really want their opponent or whoever they are arguing with to pay or to suffer in a particular way. The Lord knows that that reality is alive and well in the hearts of people who might be tempted to skew the truth just enough to get themselves off the hook and to have somebody else suffer unjustly. And so listen to what the Lord does. In verse 19, he says, if a person is a false witness, so I mean, we're right back to Revelation, right? If you are bearing witness falsely, if you are speaking something or living something that is not true to the truth, and you have accused your brother falsely, verse 19, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. I think that this is a caution. This is a caution that before you work up a case too convincingly and find a little too much glee in what you hope the convicted opponent of yours might face if in fact he's found to be guilty, before you conspire too much, you need to understand something. The measure you use is going to be measured to you. Sounds an awful lot like things Jesus says in the Gospels. Make sure you recognize if you want to hold someone else to an impossible standard, how willing are you to be held to the same standard? Jesus is interested in getting below the surface. He's interested in people being faithful witnesses to the truth, even if the testimony they speak shows their error and their fault. All through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, okay, fine, all through the Bible, this is the draw. The issue isn't, is God going to come and side with me? The issue is, are we going to side with him? And Deuteronomy 19 and Psalm 7 lay out perfectly for us, and I could show you dozens of other examples in the Bible that express when a person chooses their own definition of justice or of righteousness, what judgment looks like for them is that they experience their own cruelty poured back onto their own head. This is why Revelation eleven eighteen describes the Lord's judgment as him destroying the destroyers of the earth. The way their oppression and violence and idolatrous religion wreaked havoc on God's good world, he will allow them to be on the receiving end of the same oppression, violence, and idolatrous religion. This is a warning It's a call for us to recognize if we really are on God's side and we truly want what he wants for the world, we will be delighted when he comes in justice to restore shalom to the world. 
if we have ideologies and belief systems embedded in us that we have pawned off onto the world as truth and justice and righteousness, then we will be crushed when we see real righteousness revealed and those very ways that we've bought into are now going to come back onto our own heads. This is what Revelation is doing, and we will have several more chapters now that we've made it to the halfway point. I do intend to speed up a little bit through the rest of the book because I think we've laid a pretty strong foundation. But this is what we're going to see. What is the part that the church will continue to play as the Lord realizes that there still will be some in our world who will not change their ways? There is a hopeful message that the end is coming. It already began with the coming of Jesus and will continue to take that same form. But when the presence of God showed up on the earth 2,000 years ago, there were a host of people who did not like what they saw. That same mindset, that idolatrous religion that was embodied in the religious people is still alive and well today. But the church, the real followers of Jesus are called to embody who and what he was when he was here through the Holy Spirit And we very well may be opposed along the way. That's not a moment of discouragement. This passage here in Revelation 11 gives us great encouragement that he will right every wrong, that he will bring peace and rest and solace to his good creation. And the way he will do it is both in justice, his coming presence, but when those who destroy the earth see that justice, it will be judgment to them because it will expose every false thing about their so-called view of what was right. And so the coming of the Lord is a tremendous day. I cannot wait, but I'm signing up right now for him to reveal to me the kinds of idolatrous religion oppression, violence, ways of being that are inconsistent with his kingdom so that he can deal with those things now and I will not have to see him deal with them in a harsh way in the future. He has invited his church in. We are the first fruits of the new creation. We therefore are the first in line for him to deal with the injustices and oppression and violence and idolatrous religion present in us. The church should be first in line. That's what it means to lead. That's what it means to be the first fruits. And we have tremendous blessing to receive from that because Jesus promises that when he can strip those things out of us, both as individuals and as a community, we will find true freedom we will find true life. So that's all the time I'm gonna take for this week's episode. Thank you so much for continuing to tune in. Thank you for leaving me a rating or a review on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these on. Again, as several of you have chosen to support this podcast on a financial basis, thank you so much for your generosity some are doing that for 99 cents a month or 4.99 a month, 9.99 a month, maybe a, a different figure if you feel led to do that, maybe consider ways in which you could um sacrifice a little bit and, and support the podcast that allows me to 
get recording equipment, set up interview conversations, or to buy more resources that help us unbind the Bible together. So thank you so much. You've reached out via email or found me on Facebook. Um, You can reach me on email at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you. Comments, questions, thoughts, whatever. Just um, continue to follow Jesus. Open yourselves up to him in your own families, in your own private life, for him to set you free from the kinds of things that enslave us and that we would find joy and hope and rest and satisfaction in him and in him alone. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great week.